Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Lycanography, the podcast that codifies the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation studios, Lyca. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm linking them all together. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Lyca. Welcome back, listeners. Once more into the breach, one final Leica film in this mini-series, Jake, Steph, welcome back. Steph, it's been quite a ride from Coraline to here, or from Nightmare Before Christmas to here. It really has. We've been all over the world, across different time periods, across various monsters and and humans and different villains, and yeah, we've been all over the place really, haven't we? We have. I'm going to kick off this episode as I as I like to uh, <laughs> most recently as I like to with a question for the two of you this is more of a quiz question and since this is uh, an episode for the film Missing Link I'm going to take a page out of the rule book for one of my favourite quiz shows Only Connect which is about finding the link between seemingly random words and clues um, it's quite easy I'd say this is a beginner level question but please, can you tell me what links these clues? Jones, Babcock, Trubshaw. And have one more if you want another clue. Uh, Frost. So Frost is the fourth clue, and what unites them? They're the surnames of the Leica main characters. They are indeed. Kubo doesn't have a surname. No. <laughs> Good, Jake. So you're awake. Yeah, just about. <laughs> I was trying to go into more like, okay, Coraline Jones is played by, <laughs> like, I don't know. I think there's going to be more. Maybe more this levels. is giving us ammo for a a quiz night. Oh yeah, true. I think it'd be fun. It was, it, was, it was making me recall the only connect rounds that were film based. Like they had one where it was. Um, I think they were the acronyms for the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a sort of lateral thinking cross- crossword type uh, quiz that when you spot something, it is like the clouds clearing and the sun beaming through and you're on your brain. <laughs> <laughs> but good job. We should crack on with Missing Link, really, shouldn't we? This is the final Like a Film to date. Let's start things with a synopsis, as always. Please, Steph. Funny and gentle Mr Link, the very last of his species, yearns for companionship and a place where he belongs. To help find his rumoured cousins in the fabled valley of Shangri-La, he recruits Lionel Frost, the world's greatest sleuth of myths and monsters, Together with courageous adventurer Adelina Fortnite, they embark on a hilarious globe-trotting journey to find Link's far-flung family. So, Michael, after reading that synopsis, I thought maybe this was going to be a Zelda adaptation um, with a a mysterious 
Mr. Link uh, and trying to connect him with his <laughs> beloved ones. But uh, unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, how did this one come about? Okay, so so last episode we had Travis Knight finally making his way into the director's chair. Kubo came out, two Oscar nominations, a critical hit, if not a box office one. So what happens next? What happens when you're, you've finally made your directorial debut in stop motion, the craft that you've been dedicating yourself to for 20 years at that point? Well, Travis Knight makes the leap to live action and he goes off. March 2017, it's announced that he goes. he's going off to direct the Transformers spin-off, Bumblebee. So that's where Travis has gone at this point in terms of a director. But work is still progressing back at the ranch, and Laika had started working on their follow-up to Kubo before Kubo had even been released. Um, but they finally started talking about it in earnest in 2018. And here's a big quote from Travis Knight from that announcement press release. You know I love these. Missing Link is an artistic and technical wonder. Led by our visionary director, Chris Butler, Leica has once again blended fine art, craftsmanship and cutting-edge technology to achieve something we've never tried before. A raucous comedy entwined with a swashbuckling epic, underscoring the universal need to find belonging. Commingling keenly felt emotion, madcap humour and retina-bursting visuals, Missing Link is a kaleidoscopic, cinematic experience unlike any other. It's the most striking thing we've ever done. I, that, that, that's the language of a guy that has lived in a, a household of branding for his whole life, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think I'd want my retina to be bursted. I know, but like you. When, when you consider like the, the legacy of, of Phil Knight and, and Nike and the how good their sloganship has been across 50 years... Uh, you've got to be talking about retina bursting visuals. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if it uh, matches any of that hyperbole shortly. But there was the name drop in there, Chris Butler, who you'll recall co-wrote and co-directed Paranorman and also was involved in every like a film up to this point in either a story capacity or a writing capacity. Here he is in place as sole writer and director. And in interviews, he said that Missing Link grew out of ideas that he'd had in various notebooks for about 10, 15 years at this point. Here's a quote from Chris. He said, The kernel of the idea was I always wanted to do a kind of animated Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it was like an Indiana Jones, and I've always been a Sherlock Holmes nut. So I think the idea for this was Sherlock Holmes meets Indiana Jones meets planes, trains and automobiles. So this idea that there's an Indiana Jones sort of globe-trotting adventure with a protagonist who's like Sherlock Holmes crossed over with another idea he had about doing a Bigfoot movie. So there's your buddy, mismatched buddy comedy idea as well. So voila, out of all of that comes Missing Link. It's a really fun mishmash of an idea. And I love reading interviews with Chris Butler. You just picked up, Jake, on Travis Knight's uh, tendency to to speak a bit like a... Silicon Valley branding guru when he talks about these films but Chris Butler always goes deep on his writing process, the tone of the film, the characters the design, a great deal of thought always goes into the themes and the little meaningful moments throughout the film he talks a lot in interviews about wanting to make this the most colourful like a film which is I guess his equivalent of saying retina bursting Uh, (laughs) but also how he drew inspiration for this from Steven Spielberg's way of giving set pieces a clear, defined through line, almost a narrative in its own right. He wanted to do that here. So maybe a little bit of a departure from Travis Knight's always bigger, always better. This is something a little bit different. He's also very quick to shout out his collaborators and there are some great collaborators on this. We can't go into all of them, but I love uh, that he talks about the comics artist Warwick Johnson Cadwell, who is based on the south coast of England and um, has worked with all sorts of um, collaborators from Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame to this film and he contributed concept art for much of what we see on screen. The art book for this is really something to behold. Also, the thing we shouldn't forget about Chris Butler is he's British. Um, I think we said in a previous episode that it was a bit curious that Leica's most British film up to this point, which was The Box Trolls, was led by two American directors. But I get the sense here that Chris Butler brings a much more sort of innately British sensibility to the material. 
so lots to, to talk about in the review section for sure. Missing Link was in production for five years, I think. The production crew for this had sort of grown to the point where there were 400, 450 staffers working on this. And I should put an asterisk here because um, there's an Instagram account called stopmo underscore industry underscore stories where people in the stop motion animation industry have shared some real horror stories about their time working at that craft, including some posts, anonymous posts for about the very low pay at Leica during this production. Of course, animation in general is not a very well-paid profession and we've spoken about that before in a Japanese context so there's a similar situation here just thought I'd put an asterisk there go and read about that if you'd like to afterwards somehow and I'm not exactly sure how the budget for Missing Link crept up to around a hundred million dollars so not far off double the 60 million dollar standard they'd set for the previous three films four films even it was also the first Leica film not to be released by Focus Features. So instead, the inst- so instead the distribution this time was handled by a company called Annapurna Pictures. Now, the funny thing about Annapurna is that uh, they, they were founded by Megan Ellison, who is the rare person in Hollywood whose dad is richer than Travis Knight's dad because she's the daughter of Larry Ellison, also known as the tenth richest person in the world, who owns like the entire like he owns Hawaiian Islands. That's how, how rich that guy is. Um, Annapurna was primarily known at this point as an art house independent production company and financing company. They'd made films like Her, Phantom Thread, The Master, Twentieth Century Women, American Hustle. But around 2018, 2019, they started moving into distribution as well, and it didn't turn out very well for them. Uh, it didn't really turn out very well for Missing Link either. So it was released April 2019, sandwiched between the opening weekends for Shazam and a little film called Avengers Endgame. So it really struggled to maintain interest, to keep screens when these big films are jostling for them. And it only made $26 million in the end. So what, a quarter of that quoted budget, uh, quite a huge bomb. And if you think about that, about a decade before this, back in 2009, Coraline was making $120 million. That's a $100 million shortfall of that target. So something didn't go right on that release. It was well received, though. It won a Golden Globe for feature animation, the first stop-motion animated film to do so. And it continued Leica's Oscar nomination streak. So, quiz time once more. This is February 2020, honouring the year before. So this is the Parasite year, the Joker year. (laughs) Any guesses what it was up against? Toy Story 4? Yeah. And that one. So you've you've bullseyed the big big answer Mm -hmm. right off the bat. Uh, Deservedly, I'm sure. We all love Toy Story 4. Always going back and watching Toy Story 4. Um, Is it a double Pixar year? No. No, okay. All right. Um, oh, um, oh, no, Wolfwalkers is 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, give you some, I'll give you some clues. There is, it's a, a franchise film in there, and then the other two are complete outliers, and in fact are European films. Oh, okay. Um, I can give you more quote. I can give you more clues, but I'd like to see you suffer. Oh, who wouldn't? Um, a franchise film. What number in a series? I think it's three. Oh. I haven't. I don't really. I don't really watch this franchise. Um, they have like very long and convoluted names, so I don't really know where the where they land. But I believe this is the third one. Uh, a franchise with tedious names. I think. I think. I think that the previous one had just a two at the end, but this one had. Oh. The God is it? Is it? Is is it a Disney thing? No, there's no Disney. Is it How to Train Your Dragon three? Yes, three, which which is your the Hidden World. Uh, Yes, yeah, it's a long name. Okay, Um, so you got to get the the two European ones. Uh, They were both distributed by Netflix. One was a Christmas movie. The other was a Klaus. Yep, the other one played at Cannes. 
Oh, I lost my body. Yeah, got to give it, got to, got to hand it to you. Ha ha! Right in the end. So a really interesting That's year, a good mix. really. So two big Hollywood franchises. Again, Liker almost lands in the middle of two big Hollywood franchises, two European, yeah, more I, one more arty, one a bit more commercial. I don't what, what, love a lot of that selection. Um, what would you have given it to, Jack? Um, probably this. Steph. Yeah, I would probably agree. I think this is probably the best. I haven't seen all of those 2019, um, 2020, really, like, nominations, but um, out of the ones I have seen, probably this. Yeah, I'd say this, but I do like Klaus as well, Mm. but probably just not as much as this one. But that's a slightly different tone for the end of the context section compared to last week for Kubo, (laughs) where I was saying Kubo, we would have been sad if Kubo had won (laughs) out of the... Out of the field in the category that time, whereas now we'd be happy if Missing Link had won. Unfortunately, it didn't. It went to Toy Story 4, the the entry in that franchise that most people seem to forget, I think. But somehow <laughs> also made a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, what a world we live in where a Toy Story can be forgettable and still make a billion dollars. But no, we're not talking about Toy Story. We're going to talk right now about Missing Link in depth in our review section. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, gang. We've just established that this didn't make much money on its theatrical release. Steph, did you see this at the cinema? I did. I did. I gave Missing Link money. Um, <laughs> gave them my my pocket change to go to the Empire down the road and uh, and have a sit-in. I think it was like a matinee screening in the afternoon. Um, there was a few kids in there. It was in screen one, which is like That's the a big great screen, screen. The local. Yeah. So I think um, this is the first like a film that I've seen like on release in the cinema as well. Um, and I think we'll probably get into the kind of the look of this film um in the in the rest of the review section but i think seeing it on the big screen was such a treat because this is um especially coming off the back of something like kubo which is obviously very beautiful this is just like another level like the lighting all Mm. of those like lovely pinks and purples that you get right at the start when they're kind of on the water and then that you get like throughout the rest of the film there's just like a permanent golden hour glow to everything it's so warm it's so kind of well considered in all of the colors that it uses it's just such a treat to see that kind of huge 
um, and next to, you know, a couple of five-year-olds that are just going, wow, whoa, what's <laughs> happening? So yeah, like a real treat, a treat to see this in the company of uh, the local children and <laughs> and really large. Um, yeah. But did you guys see it in the cinema or was this, did this miss you? I saw it in a screening room because I interviewed Chris Butler at the time. And I think sadly... 90% of that interview has been lost to the digital wastes. It's out there with Batgirl somewhere. Um, <laughs> but there is, I think we have a two minute clip that we might just drop on the feed. Is that, so I, I interviewed him, so I saw the film in a, in one of those film company screening rooms where the aircon air is turned up too high and it's at half nine in the morning and you're there with a couple of people in, you know, in suits with a croissant. So it's a bit, a bit of a different vibe to yours, Steph. But <laughs> and they, and those men in suits were going, what? <laughs> wow! What's going on? <laughs> well, if they were, they were saying it into their croissants, and I didn't hear them. But Jake, what did you uh, did you see this on release? No, I, I failed. Like uh, I failed Travis. He didn't get my money that he desperately needed. Um, I I watched this at home on a Friday night with a takeaway, um, and then watched it again for the pod. Um, but I um, yeah. I, I liked it at the time. I'd say I like it more now. I think it it really rewards for second viewing. I think once you're um, once you're kind of ridden it through with the story the first time round, and you can really settle into the style of it the second time round. Mm-hmm. So so lovely, um, so beautifully paced. Should we start with that sort of overall pitch? Mm. So we've had equivalence of that all the way through where it's an epic samurai stop-motion adventure with Ray Harryhausen elements or what was Box Trolls? It was Monty Python meets Barry Lyndon. Um, This one has a relatively more simple and straightforward one which is Indiana Jones, Sherlock Holmes, Bigfoot, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Um, What did you make of that, Jake, on this Friday night? I think the the Sherlock Holmes is a bit of a stretch uh, in that the guy is English uh, and a bit posh. But he, his, what he does as a job isn't Sherlock Holmesy, really. I think digging into interviews, the Sherlock Holmes element was more that he is this um, almost bulletproof, water off a duck's back narcissist type character. Yeah. Um, which maybe watching it out you know, without any of that context, you wouldn't necessarily connect that with Sherlock Holmes. But that was the kernel mm. of it, like the the taking somebody who is the epitome of an English hero and matching it with um, a sort of rambunctious American-type character, like a John Candy, if it's the planes, trains, and automobiles connection. Um, so I do see that, and I think that's one of the most delightful parts of this, watching this back for me, is that that character who can just almost slide through life, particularly yeah. those early scenes where uh, everyone else around him is is you know getting knocked on the head or thrown to their feet, but he's just impervious to anything. It is quite strange watching it thinking this is a kids film and its main character is bad and not in an edgelord jokery way like he mugged a nun (laughs) like he's not a good man and um to kind of trust in kids to go along for 90 minutes with this character is Mm -hmm. quite surprising compared to um the kind of more binary thinking characters we've seen in the previous films where everyone is kind of telling you their emotions all the time. Yeah, he's also not a kid. Mm. Mm. So it's the first like a film that doesn't have a kid protagonist. So already that's one step away. But I, I'm, I suppose he's thinking back to those films he watched as a kid, you know, mm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Th- th- those films we're talking about, they, don't, they didn't need a kid protagonist to be the... Um, you know, the, the surrogate on screen for the audience. Yeah, I, I really like as well that the um, the kind of the quest for Missing Link is done within 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, and that it, it, it kind of slides that to one side to become this globetrotting adventure. And it really feels like that. Um, it feels like an adventure. And I think that comes from the the spirit of the characters and what they want out of their experiences compared to something like Ubo. Like there is, um, cause the, we, we like the landscapes in Kubo are beautiful, but we're kind of disconnected from them and there's no awe to them because it, that doesn't really extend to the characters. 
Whereas Steph, like all that lighting that we you, you talked about as well, that I think we feel awe for those locations because mm-hmm. the characters are adventurers and they want to be going out and exploring. And I think that translates a bit more. So even if there might be similarities in the approach to landscape, there's more of a um, more of a connection to me as a viewer. Uh, I don't know what 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 did you think of like all of the settings because I I thought it it was a real step up even though it was less of a obvious trying to wow you in the way that Kubo might be. I mean, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that like they've gone bigger with the amount of locations that they're going for, um, but I guess it feels less like you know the checklist of here's Mount Fuji and here's like a, a, a Japanese thing that we have to get into mm. this landscape that happened in Kubo. Um, and I think there's a lot more, well, I guess because they, I feel like reckoning a lot with, um, you know, what colonialism is doing to like indigenous people and in like nature, there's a lot of kind of background scenes that are beautiful but are also destructive like there's a bit where they're kind of walking and talking behind these giant kind of chopped down redwood trees that is like a really beautiful shot but is inherently kind of indicative of like the violence of colonialism that's Mm. happening around them um so i think there's like a lot more considered um stuff going on in those backgrounds and in the locations michael what did you think yeah absolutely so that sort of goes back to that, that element of the context we can't fully contrast this film with any of the previous ones because chris butler was a key creative on all of those he just has he has script credits on some of them and story credits story team credits as well so it's not like he's come in and completely changed the script but it is marked isn't it like you've had two films in a row which really need to build up to some big massive you know however big it is creation that's wowing you and showing you we did this in stop motion so this one does in some ways seem like a slightly less ambitious film but all the ambition is turned maybe inwards and it is presenting a a nuanced story it's much Mm. more interested in character development building a world and a time period and details within that that i don't think maybe paranorman tried to have some some of that but it definitely wasn't there in kubo or box trolls because they were painting with broader brush strokes so that's where i think that his britishness comes into it so there's a lot of class detail here um and as you say the fact that this is set almost specifically at the sort of fulcrum turning point of where the british empire is at its strongest but is only ever going only ever going to go downhill from here as the 20th century looms and it draws i think a very neat link between the decline of um, British imperialism and the rise of everything from suffrage to anti-colonial thinking. Admittedly, it's that's still, in the grand scheme of things, quite broad strokes, but it's meant to be for a family audience. And what? I think compared mm. to any other mainstream film tackling this, um, maybe outside of Black Panther, it, it's really successful doing that, uh, interrogating and attacking that, particularly also... The way the, the the way it draws its characters and draws its social world very quickly in its opening scenes, where you have Lionel Frost, who is a the epitome of the upper class English gentleman who will never have to suffer in his life. Everything is laid on a plate for him, and it's his valets or his his uh, servants who are the ones that are getting bashed on the head. But he still has some. Um, sort of nervous energy towards being accepted within the club the rich boys club the old gentleman's club but they have arcane um, laws and guidelines which is more for shutting people out and then controlling who the people who are outside of their doors and then that that speaks for so much of a worldview that is still relevant to today and picks up on what I think is one of the themes and threads throughout this <laughs> miniseries in the sense of we are finally shining a light on the um, the potential destruction and the backwards thinking that comes with elites and um, not to put too much of a Travis Knight autobiographical because uh, he's not, of course this isn't his film but the auteurist thing here but i see lionel as travis knight here he's the golden boy 
who can do whatever he wants and he just really wants to be accepted in the world of animation <laughs> and so there's a headline at one point where mr link holds up the newspaper and it says something like uh playboy heir squanders family fortune <laughs> <laughs> i actually asked chris, chris butler about that i put him on the spot and he just burst out laughing saying it never crossed their mind <laughs> but he did feel like uh, he did come across like i'd caught him out a little bit but it's there isn't it there is that nervous um feeling of uh, upward mobility which comes at the price of community and um and communion with peoples and wildlife and the natural world which is one of those themes that we can talk about at length which is something we've not had really yeah. in any of the films so far and so, so i think as a character susan is so good uh, as a vessel for that thematic exploration because it's embodiment of evolution and mm-hmm. not just in the darwinian sense of the word but in a kind of personal, social way as well. It, everyone in this film needs to evolve in some way, whether that is kind of reckoning with a scientific outlook on the way that human life has worked for millions of years or tens of thousands of years, whatever it might be, um, but also those characters, that it is this vessel of evolution that allows Lionel to evolve, to become someone who does not need that structure in his life that he's been told he has to be a part of and it's that the same goes for susan too that he doesn't need to be part of that thing that family that he feels like he has to be because that's what structure has told him it needs to be he can evolve past that as well and it did make me think that this this film is the flip side of box trolls because in the box trolls, the kind of compelling, although misguided, villain character is a hunter who is told that he's not allowed to be part of the upper class structure in society and tries the whole time in the film to be part of that society. And his reward at the end of it is being blown to shreds. And in this film, we have pretty much the same character journey except the character at the end of it realizes that that structure is not worth being part of i think like like that is quite an evolution just in a handful of years and like Mm -hmm. maybe that's something that chris butler given that sole writing credit and character design credit as well Mm -hmm. is bringing to the table absolutely i'd like to ask you mentioned susan as a name Mm. there is the susan moment in this film which I think at the time, maybe taken out of context, was being added to the pile of um, uh, Lyca's awkward or uncomfortable, potentially uh, problematic moments because it is, to particularly taken out of context, played a little bit like a joke or a punchline. I think on, on rewatch it's much more nuanced than that, but what did you two make of, of that moment? So to set it up, it's where Mr Link... Uh, is is encouraged to come up with a first name for himself, and he talks about the um, the explorer or the fr- frontiers person who um, you know, he greatly idolised and helped him. And then Lionel is presuming that would be a man, and he says Susan. What 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 do you make of that? Well, I think I think Lionel kind of like he is surprised and kind of briefly questions it, but then everyone goes along with it from there on out. Mm-hmm. And it's not really joked on for the rest of the film. Yeah, it it has that kind of, uh, you know, punchline quality to it where, you know, the music stops and he's like, oh, Susan uh, is my name, which, um, yeah, like it's unusual, but it's like, I think it's taken seriously after that because I think the reasoning for him choosing that name is kind of explained so nicely. Yeah. Um, it being like somebody that he has like a, a strong connection with. Um, and then, yeah, it's kind of, it, it just, yeah, carries on from there. And I think it's interesting because even though, you know, in Box Trolls, um, there was a lot of um, quiet, um, yeah, stuff that did not play very well in terms of kind of playing with gender, but there was also a lot of stuff about um, the 
boy saying, you know, I'm not a boy, I'm a box troll. What's a boy? And there's, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of um, stuff around kind of gender and mm-hmm. sexuality kind of going on in in their films in the background. And I think this is a nice... They've kind of got it right in this one. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to put it all on Chris Butler because Chris Butler also co-wrote Paranorman, which is the one that has the reveal at the end that the big jock character is is gay. Which, um, like, if that was coming out now, Disney would be making headlines and making exactly. such a big There's fuss out of Such that. a subtle kind of moment uh, in that film, but a meaningful one. He doesn't like to make much of it, but he is an out gay man, Chris Butler. So he, he sees this as a film um, of characters searching for their comfortable true identities or you know, all of them are to a certain extent um but he sees that he doesn't undercut it it's a meaningful moment for mr link and it almost ends on well, while it does have a bit of an unexpected punchline i think it almost serves one of the fundamentals of a joke right which is it maybe rubs up against some quite stubborn fixed thinking in your brain and then then, then almost says but why not yeah well um, and, and it underlines uh, Lionel's sexism as well that yeah. he would assume that the pioneer was a bloke mm-hmm. absolutely so we've talked about the themes here um, I think this is a much richer film than we've dealt with in, in, in a long while in this miniseries but let's talk about some of that adventure mm. aspect the design the direction everything so Jake come on you're the big Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. fan among us the Indiana Jones guy um, how does this play on that level? Yeah, I mean, one of my first notes on this is Nessie's sequence has incredible movement. Uh, and that's true. Like so many of the set pieces, the momentum is so good. But it's that Spielberg thing of knowing where the characters are at all times. Like you can really track the action. And whether that's in a, a big scale set piece like the one with Nessie where you have these these big monsters or the bridge at the end where there's grand scale... And those are really impressive. Like you can absolutely see that he's a fan of the Last Crusade because of the setup of the bridge at the end and the way that the bridge kind of disappears into the landscape around it and the shape of the bridge. Love you, Chris. Great work. Um, <laughs> but maybe my favourite set piece, which shows this ability to really track satisfying movement, is the bar brawl, mm. which I think is is really good action. It's really funny. And it's, it doesn't just chop around all the time. Like, I think if you were to watch, if you were to see that in a live action film or like an episode of Westworld or something, it would either be doing one long tracking shot to show you all the cool stuff they're doing, or it would be choppy, changey, showing you lots of action all the time, but not really just showing you kind of speed uh, without kind of showing you fighting skill or anything like that. Um but I think you really feel the movements of the characters. It really takes its time to place the camera down to show you this character, this character's fist moving across screen to catch this character in the face. And it's slightly slower than it might be in live action because they are relishing in the movements of the characters and you really are able to track how the scene works. And you see that in so so many of the set pieces here. I think it's really, really good. I think, interestingly, it's comparable... Definitely comparable to Spielberg's Tintin. Um, you've got mm-hmm. that kind of globe-trotting feeling, but it doesn't have that same breakneck quality that Tintin does. Tintin has so many locations and so many stunts all the time, and it doesn't have as much character depth as this one might have, particularly with the character of Tintin. Um, Tintin is just a, this vessel for adventure. Um, but I think this slows down the pace, like those bits where it's just in the... You mentioned, Steph, like in the forest, and it's just the lighting through the trees. And they want to show off those locations that they've built. And they show them off so well because you have um, different camera moves and camera placements than we've seen before. There's a lot of top-down shots uh, which work really well, especially when they cut, you cut to a map. Um, and you can see these these journeys that they're going on from kind of left to right across the screen. Um, you've got these beautiful profile landscape shots where you've almost got characters just silhouetted. It's all very... It's very grand in that way, but manages to feel very grounded as well. You always feel like you are just with a handful of characters. Uh, you're not. You're both in and out of an epic at the same time. Uh, I like it a lot. I think those um, moments where you're just on the ground with the characters as well, and they're 
you know, having the, the kind of conversation, dialogue heavy scenes, I think they've worked out how to make those visually interesting as well. Mm. I think with something like Kubo, like the, it's very static. There's a lot of talking to get through. With this, whenever they have to stop and do a lot of talking, the camera is always moving. There's always like editing going on. There's that great scene where like Lionel was talking to Adelina in the ship um, and the boat is rocking. And while they're having this conversation, all of the chairs and the wine mm. glasses are kind of moving up and down with the rocking of the ship. Um, that just makes it so much more kind of dynamic. And I feel like they're really thinking about what's going on in the world around them while those conversations are happening. The, the, it just makes it move so much. The boat rocking. Like smoother. It's so good. Like yeah. doing their inception <laughs> is just amazing. Well, yeah, all, all, that whole boat sequence is also one of the most experimental things like has ever done because mm. that must be so sort of logistically so hard to do because if you're mm. having characters moving at the same time as their entire all, all of the all of the sets the props are also moving in and sequence. the camera and the camera <laughs> and then yes as you say when the when the boat tips over and the entire um yeah the entire set is on its side that for me feels more we've said all the way through where once Paranorman comes along definitely with Kubo up to, up to that point, it feels more like a visual effects experiment than something that people have actually moved with their hands or created with their hands. Some of that stuff really made me think, how did they do that mm. with the actual physical characters for the first time in a while? Mm. Um, but this one, there really is... this. Uh, going back to some of my greatest hits of um, comments for this series, the love of creativity and design and storytelling and filmmaking is all so comprehensive in this. My favourite shot, weirdly, is when they're coming into New York City and it looks like a absolutely beautiful illustrated matte backdrop of you know the Statue of Liberty under construction and Manhattan behind it with the boat in the foreground. And there's so many moments like that of colour and design that as well as direction. It just seems to be that they've he, he's Chris Butler and the team on this one has just cracked the code for how to show off their influences and inspirations, but also doing something on their own terms. Because I love the character designs in this. And in a way that I think that um, it made me remember Paranorman and how there those delightfully wonky aspects of the design, like the car with the slanted roof. There wasn't really a unified look for the characters in this film. And you'd be like, oh, Mr. Lincoln, this has quite an Ardman smile. Or Adelina mm -hmm. kind of looks like Lady Penelope from Thunderbirds. So there are all these, like, this kind of beautifully, beautiful diversity of styles of characters, I thought. You say mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I, I really don't... like how Lionel's legs kind of are at the side of his body it's like <laughs> how a kid would draw like when you draw a person with a skirt the legs are just like out here <laughs> like i really like that i really like as well how all the animals have um forward-facing eyes like they're all even the horse has kind of these very <laughs> human like eyes right on the front of his head um i think there's something in there about them like anthropomorphizing all the animals because they're closer to humanity than than you think and you know because you, you're getting the the link between susan and and humans but also i just think yeah the horse is very funny looking i really like it i i don't think adelina looks good like i think that's bad character design like compared okay. to uh, to me because I, I think she's a bit lifeless and I think mm -hmm. that's maybe because she's got, they give her kind of bigger DreamWorks-y eyes uh, that are maybe because you're drawn to them a bit more, that it feels like there's less movement going on. To me, it was had a slight kind of dead-eyed Team America look to it. But yeah, it, it looked more like something from a puppet, yeah. as in marionette type that's um, right. Film. Mm. So that that's what surprised me, and whether it worked or not, it was so so interesting mm. to see that amongst the sort of very expressive, uh, like a style standard characters and the character animation in this. I think Mr. Link's character animation, particularly when you first meet him, and he's mm. so fidgety, and oh, he's <laughs> such a fun creation. Like again, to bring it back to the bar brawl, because he is like he's like a cannonball who's got pipe cleaners for legs and arms and so you give that to an animator and like figure out how does this character move there or like when he's when he's, they're trying to break into the house and he's limbering up and then eventually just crashes through the wall it's like that's a beautiful moment for the animators to show you how this creation of theirs 
works and you can see him flex and stuff. It's a lovely creation. And I didn't mention it on Kubo, but I really like Monkey's um, fur in the way that, because it doesn't look like fur. It looks like in Kubo, it's kind of these broken shards of glass. And here it's more like these plasticine autumn leaves. And it, it doesn't want to look hyper real. And it doesn't look like something from Fantastic Mr. Fox either. And they refer to it as his fur. It's like, well, it's, it's not, but we'll go along with it because it's the most expressive version of it. It's really lovely. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, Michael, you mentioned the, the um, your map background for New York. I think that's something that's um, really good in here is these is the background textures, just the really simple background textures where it's like these pastely, jagged shapes and they're not hyper-detailed or anything, so the characters in front of it can pop, but they're still got kind of an expressionism to them and it reminded me of like cartoon saloon like what they're doing in wolf Walkers, where it might just mm -hmm. be this flat background that doesn't geographically make much sense but it's contributing to the journey that people are going on it's heightening that experience even if it doesn't look super real and that's that's vfx like you see that in the sequence at the end in the credits mm -hmm. where they just paint it in on a green screen it's like using the green screen to not be super real as we talked about last week with like uh mitchell's versus the machines or turning red where you you don't need to be just going for that hyper real you can make it look less detailed and that heightens the experience more yeah you mentioned um cartoon's saloon there um, ross stewart is thanked in the credits oh, right, okay. and in the art book there are a couple of concept designs that ross um contributed to i think it's like the interior of the gentleman's club or maybe lionel's study oh, the, like the early, early designs of that stuff um, but i imagine if you think about the timelines for this i wonder whether wolf walkers you know got the green light and then he was pulled more mm. into that but once again this is that feeling because he also worked on paranorman this feels in dialogue with animation and other animators uh, in a way that maybe some of the other films have felt more quite hermetically sealed. Mm. Oh, yeah, the, the, this is one... After lots of films where they really wanted to show off the exteriors, this is one where it has a couple of really brilliant interior scenes that they want to show off. Absolutely. Like, inside of the train carriage of the... They're not geographers, the Adventurers Guild, the saloon, her villa... Uh, all of these are so so good it's mm -hmm. great I, I just want to say i love the gunfight yeah. scene so, such a sort of small simple scene that you may not find in some of the other it, it's not a showcase scene but it's just so well blocked and so well um directed steph are there any elements of the design because i know you love the sort of the minuscule details <laughs> that we sometimes miss uh, any elements of the design you want to shout out um i think costume is such a big one for me on this um we we talked a bit about you know the costume on Coraline um and James the Giant Peach and like some of those earlier ones and I think the costumes are just so so good in this um I think if animation or stop motion animation isn't you know nominated for best costume design Oscars then this should have been really um especially just because you know everything is done in miniature there's so much detail. Um, Lionel's little knitted balaclava hat at the end is just amazing. I love that they give you, yeah, they give you time to kind of look at all of those costumes from all, from all angles, see all of the work that's gone into it, and you know, just see all of the the tiny little ruffles and pin ties and um, and Susan's kind of bulging like yellow suit. Um, that just kind of really stands out against all those like purple and blue backgrounds. Um, I just think it's so, so kind of special and and really well done. Mm. Um, and just, yeah, I guess the fact that you can see all of those textures um, on them. Um, and I think sometimes the costumes have been a little bit um, textureless and mm -hmm. just look a bit like plastic or some obscure fabric but in this you've got you know all this like herringbone tweed and and satin and and furs at the end when they're in their kind of cold weather outfits mm -hmm. um, and i love the way they kind of fit the shapes of each character as well um, i just think they're so so well done yeah we, we quoted the director one of the directors of box trolls who said they didn't want their films to look like fantastic mr fox but I feel that this is the most fantastic Mr. Fox like a film mm. yet. Mm -hmm. And it is all in that detail and the colour and the, the textures in particular. Um, mm -hmm. As well as I think that this is definitely in the same 
um, storytelling realm as Wes Anderson in his most adventurous. Yeah. Uh, before we move on to top motion, Jake, any final comments um, on uh, on Missing Link? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to give it a full A star. I still think some of the humour is annoying. Um, and I think that's that's a trapping of the time and maybe what the kind of prevailing sense of humour for kids animated. Which, which, which elements? The sort of Abbott Costello type yeah. Fordville wordplay? Am, am I play? rambling? Oh, I said, I, I said ooh, like I knew I, what I was talking about, but I don't. Oh, oh, so, okay, so do you mean more on the side of that um, almost American self-conscious humour? Yes. Because this is the one where he brings a lot of that um, uh, the the wordplay, the sort of mismatching of multiple yeah, definitions of words. Yeah, and it's kind of anachronistic for the time period, um, which is, like, fine in small doses, but it just felt a bit, kind of laid on a bit thick. I did think, like, if you didn't really do that, if you kind of treated it as being set in, the, like, if everyone spoke, not everyone spoke like Lionel, but had, had kind of the same kind of use of language as Lionel and is not speaking like a modern person all the time, then at the end, when Susan says, your utopia sucks, like... <laughs> That if you had played it straight the whole time and then had that line, that would have been so funny. Um, but I, I, yeah, there was just a bit, bit too much um, of that kind of that kind of humour. Um, although I liked the English joke of saying "eaten," obviously, uh, which won't mean much to I suppose much of the audience, but worked for me as a gag. Um, so better sense of humour than previous stuff, but still slightly annoying. So it's the awkward where they have to put in lots of gags for maybe they're concerned about keeping families and kids mm. engaged. So they have to put something like that, a tip of the hat, a kind of little drop of the mask, some sort of calling attention to itself humour. Um, but yeah, may, may, yeah for, for me, that, that did start to grate at times, yeah. but uh, there was so much more to distract me with this time. Steph, any final comments? Um, I really loved when they go into the bar and the bar tender has cash only tattooed onto his knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> that really made me laugh. There's a lot of um, a lot of good good bits and bobs like that that made me laugh. Also, one thing that will never get old for me is characters taking instructions very literally, and I think they really nailed that with um, Lionel and Susan's kind of dynamic. I thought, yeah, yeah they Thro- as, th- as much as the gags sometimes got a bit, um, yeah. A bit laboured, I think that that stuff of like you know throw this rope over the wall, yeah. and then that yeah he just throws the whole rope over the wall. Um, that stuff really makes me laugh. So can yeah. can I just rattle off other things that I like that we haven't talked about? Okay, because there is it. lots of stuff I really like. I think Emma Thompson's really good as the yeah. the, the leader of um, the other tribe of um, missing linkers. Um, the mirror shot where he's in the ice box and his his identity is fractured, uh, a la Ray in Last Jedi great um the sequence where they're holding onto the um ice on the underside of the bridge amazing like the Mm -hmm. tension there and also lionel frost's finger muscles unreal (laughs) um yeah it's like the train journeys train journeys really good the maps that uses like maps like doing the maps for your grand adventure film whether it's like indiana jones or whether it's the muppets does it so well or tintin Mm -hmm. Um, and it does the map thing really, really well. Um, doesn't just overlay; it makes it feel like the characters are actually using the maps. Um, great, 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 great. Good film. I particularly like the flipbook in the credits. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that they're bringing in almost like characters are drawing in the world, which is that thing of we said before about creativity within the creativity. Um, but you say something there, actually, Jake. This does play more in the world of the Muppets or um, Spielberg films, Spielberg's Tintin film we've talked about how Leica have positioned themselves as to the, was it, to the left of Pixar, to the right of Nightmare Before Christmas, but this feels like they're going, playing in a completely different ballpark yeah. now, much more just straightforward films, doesn't mm. only be animated films. Um, really, really, uh, really something. But we should see where this lands in our top motion rankings. Let's do it. All right then, Jake, Steph, for the last time, the top motion rankings for the selectionary and the lichenography. Steph, I will come to you first. 
Can you please recap your list and, and tell us where this lands? Sure. So on my list, I have from top to bottom, Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas, Paranorman, Monkey Bone, James of the Giant Peach, Kubo and Box Trolls. Uh, this is sitting pretty high for me. I think when we do our mailbag episode, we might have to do a bit of a ranking amnesty and, um, <laughs> and rethink. But I think this is this is better than Paranorman. I think it's um, has all its kind of ideas about what it wants to say a little bit clearer, and just the craft is really like singing in this one. Um, it's so enjoyable. So I think it's sitting third between mm. Nightmare and Paranorman for me. Jake? I think this we're going to have exactly the same thinking process here, is that <laughs> it's better than Paranorman, but not as good as the things above Paranorman. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, same for me. So Coraline, James, Missing Link, Paranorman, Nightmare Before Christmas, Box Trolls, Kubo, Monkey Bone. Paranorman still above Nightmare Before Christmas there in your rankings, Jake. Okay. I'm just yeah, brave enough to say it. Yep, and I'm brave enough to say that this comes third in my <laughs> rankings as well. So Coraline, Nightmare, Missing Link, Paranorman, James, Kubo, Box Trolls, Monkey Bone. I just want to say Missing Link feels like the ultimate Leica film um, after them seemingly kind of, particularly after Coraline, the post-Coraline films where they weren't maybe there's sort of a self-consciousness or trying too hard in certain directions and not nailing some fundamentals i think missing link really does nail a lot of those fundamentals and has a quiet confidence and charm to it compared to the others um and you know i love an underdog i, I put whisper of the heart number one for me uh, above spirited away and my neighbor totoro i think this is uh, the best post Coraline like a film and too few people saw it on release strong recommendations from the three of us but wow we've come to the end of the iconography we do have bonus episodes left we are going to be tackling bumblebee seeing what travis knight was up to uh, while all this was going down and we will have our mailbag episode where we invite everyone to join us with their own thoughts and takes and criticisms and comments about everything we've talked about so far have we got it right have we got it wrong let us know ghibliatech at gmail dot com and we'll read out a bunch yeah. of those well, on air. And if you if you can if you want to record a voice memo as well and it, and send it that way, by all means do we can include it in the show. Yeah, and we'll also be sort of providing some of the missing links between the histories, getting up to <laughs> modern day and looking ahead to what Leica and Henry Selleck have in store for us in the next year or two. You can also find us on socials at Ghibliatech on Twitter, ghibliatech.pod on Instagram. We're also on Patreon for ad-free episodes, footnotes, blogs, looking at all of the articles and videos that went into the research for the context sections, as well as those library cafe bonuses that I just mentioned. You can also find us all individually on Twitter. Steph is there at underscore Steph Watts. Jake is there at Jake H. Cunningham. And Michael's there at Michael J. Leader. by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ying. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.